1: every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hooray for Hollywood. Hooray for Hollywood. you so misunderstood. Hey, this is Breckerski. Welcome to another edition of On The List. This is episode number 26. Today is Friday, August 9th, 2013. It's also my dad's birthday, the big 7-0. So happy birthday to my dad. Uh, I actually just got back from New Jersey, went home to celebrate my dad's birthday and my twin nieces' birthdays. Their first birthdays, they turned one on July 31st. So happy birthday to them. Uh, We had a joint birthday party this week for my dad and my nieces, which was very nice. It was a perfect day. Had a great week at home, hung out with the whole family, lots of quality time with the nephew, Took him to see Smurfs, too. Had a lot of fun. Uh, It's been a very nostalgic week for me, too, because two days ago, August 7th, was officially my 10-year anniversary of living in LA. Uh, August 7th, 2003, 10 years ago, got my first apartment here, shipped out my car, lived here ever since. Graduated from college in 2002, was back and forth for a year living at Oakwood, but it all became official on August 7th, 2003, and it could not be more perfect to have the guest I have with me in the studio. Because he was the only person I knew when I moved to L.A. 10 years ago. Uh, And the timing's very serendipitous because he has a movie coming out next week and that he wrote and directed called Kick-Ass 2, Jeff Wadlow.
0: Hello. (laughs) What's up, Josh? Uh, Not much. I'm very excited to be here. I can't believe I was the only person you knew when you got to L.A.? Pretty much. So basically, you owe all your success to me. I do. I will take full credit for that. Yeah,
1: it's perfect. And actually, the first job I ever had in L.A. was I interned on your movie, Cry Wolf.
0: That's right. So, we should probably explain how we know each other,
1: right? Yes. Well, that's what I was going to do okay. before we get to Kick-Ass 2, which is the most important thing to talk about. But um, yeah, so of all the podcasts, uh, this one is the most interesting, I think, be, not to take anything away from my previous guest, but um, it's a trip down memory lane because of all my guests, you are the person I've known the longest. Probably of any guest I'll ever have on the show.
0: Uh, quite possibly, because I, I did meet you when you were... Uh just a young man dreaming of being a hollywood star (laughs) that's true wet behind the ears yes it was
1: 1997 and i did a summer program called summer discovery at ucla uh and you were my counselor
0: i was that was a it was an incredible summer i was going to dartmouth undergrad and i knew i wanted to move to la and so i came out and worked at ucla for like what was that program six weeks six weeks yeah six weeks as a counselor and it, I, I thought it was going to be a cakewalk, but I had this one guy on my hall who just caused so much trouble and made my life a living hell.
1: Not me. And of course. I'm oh, kidding. I was going to say. Kidding. <laughs> I'm
0: kidding. Uh, I, was,
1: I was the perfect camper.
0: Uh, no, but even back then, Brett, I remember you had an uncanny ability for sneaking into events.
1: Yes, we went to the Men in Black premiere. Yeah. Oh you, my God, I forgot about that. No, but you
0: snuck. You would. You would sneak into like every premiere that happened uh, down it, in Westwood. Yes. And I'd be like, Hey, Brett. We, you missed, you know, Lights Out or whatever it was. You're like, <laughs> right. oh, yeah, you know, I was hanging out with Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, or that's like. true.
1: Oh, my God, that is true. I, I oh, my gosh. Stuff. I actually forgot this story. So Sylvester Stallone was at the Contact premiere, and I met him, and he signed an autograph. And for some reason, he gave me his water bottle that he was drinking out of. So I kept that and the autograph. But, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, um, I actually kind of I, I forgot I snuck into him because in my memory, I, I was supposed to be there. But you're right. Men in Black, the first one. And then contact, yeah, all those premieres in Westwood. I would just—I don't know if I snuck in. I think I just like wandered in.
0: You—you—you you, you snuck in. Right? <laughs> and if that's not a litmus test for success in Hollywood, I don't know what is.
1: Thank you. Actually, Spielberg used to sneak onto the Universal a lot. That's his famous story. Yeah. So maybe yeah. I took a page from his. No, book. I,
0: I think didn't I write a recommendation yes. for you? Oh yes. My, my whole thesis was that. If you can sneak into those premieres, you are definitely going to make it in the film business.
1: Wow, that's right. That I should have brought that recommendation. Best recommendation I've ever gotten. I used it to get any job I've had since. Uh, so I want to say that 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 summer program, Summer Discover UCLA. They have them everywhere. They all over the world. Um, LA, Michigan, Oxford. Obviously, I chose LA. You chose LA, uh, but there were four hundred campers, but only really like eight campers to every counselor. Yeah, you got like four rooms, and each room had a pair of roommates. And so, just by as fate would have it, I was one of your four rooms.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's crazy. It funny. Sixteen funny years ago,
1: I know. And we were both, and we both had the same aspirations. I remember actually, you sat each one of us down individually to get to know us, like the first night, and told us like your story. And you were going. It sounds a little when creepy when
0: you put it that way. No. I think it was man by the the, the kid right. that we had to do that. Well, of course. It was very nice. <laughs> it was very
1: nice. No, but also, like, we had this person in charge of us for six weeks. It was good to like, get to know them yeah. a little bit. And they're telling you when to go to sleep and when to wake up. Yeah. But, um, but basically, I just remember you saying you were a film major at Dartmouth and you wanted to be a director. And I had never met anyone else that wanted to be a director in my
0: life. So I was just like, that's really cool. So do I. Yeah. No, it was it was, it was neat. We were, we were clearly both drawn out here for... Uh, Similar reasons, although I'm not sure how productive the Summer Discovery Program was as far as it came to uh, furthering our careers, other than it gave you the opportunity to sneak into a ton of premieres, right,
1: and meet you, yeah, and which led to my first internship. But also, five years later, followed in your footsteps, 2002, and I was a counselor at Summer Discovery UCLA. That was when I was
0: in the Chrysler Contest. That's
1: right, which we will talk about. But uh, but that sort of does help because that after graduating college pushed me to move to LA, and then I've been here ever since. So in a way, the Summer Discovery UCLA program, if you're Thinking about moving to L.A. gives you an excuse to come out here, and then you just never leave. Yeah. If if that's your plan. Um, Well, we'll talk about all that. We'll talk about Crywolf. We'll talk about UCLA.
0: But first, let's start by talking about Kick-Ass 2, because now you are a director. I am a director. (laughs) And a writer. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm really excited. It came true. Yeah, no, I'm very excited. The movie's coming out on August 16th, and it's something I've I've worked really hard on for the last year and a half. Uh, I was in London for a whole year working on it. Yeah. You shot Um, it in London. Yeah, we shot it in London and Toronto. Uh, and I'm really proud of it. And, you know, the cast is fantastic. And we have some great new actors in there as well. And it was, it was a tough movie to make because, you know, we made it for the uh, fraction of the budget that most superhero movies have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I think like, Amazing Spider-Man probably spends more money on catering <laughs> right. than we spent on our entire film. Yeah. But it is a Universal movie. Uh, well, Universal acquired. It started out oh, okay. as an independent film, but they, it's a negative pickup. So oh, wow. Universal's releasing it. Um, You
1: actually tweeted something interesting the other day, which you sort of just mentioned, but you wrote, loved watching Kick-Ass 2 with the cast and crew. The movie looks like it cost more than it did because they worked their asses off. Forever grateful. So I I, I actually – I'll say that I watched the movie yesterday, and I agree. It looks like it was a big-budget action movie.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think if you look at the three films I've made – I, I think one thing I've been successful at is putting it all on the screen and yeah. actually making it look like the movies cost more than they really do uh, Cry Wolf my first one was a million Then Never Back Down uh, was 18 and uh, Kick-Ass 2 was about 28 and so I, I just you know Work really hard, and, and fortunately, have had crews that have worked really hard to put all that money on the screen. Yeah,
1: it definitely looks like it cost a lot more than twenty-eight million dollars. I would say. Did, did shooting in London have to do with that? Yeah, you know, did there's a, there's
0: a rebate, uh, a healthy rebate, if you shoot in London, um, and the crews there are fantastic. You know, there's a long tradition of big Hollywood movies shooting over there. Obviously, Star Wars shot there, and they're going to shoot the new Star Wars movies there. Uh, Pinewood Studios, where we shot all the James Bond movies, are are, uh, filmed there. Oh, wow. Um, And so the crews are incredibly talented and hardworking. Uh, and and like I said, they just work their butts off. Yeah.
1: Well, you shot in London, but the movie takes place in New York City, and you would never know.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, I,
1: I that, really I, I thought the high school, I thought the city streets, I really thought it looked like New York City.
0: Uh, for someone who likes to put all the money on the screen, I find it incredibly annoying shooting in a location that's not <laughs> actually where you want to shoot, right? Um, because you end up spending a lot of money faking things. But again, I was just really lucky in that we had a, a very smart crew and and my production designer Russell De Rosario and my DP, Tim Morris-Jones, you know, the three of us just worked really hard to make sure that uh, the audience never was allowed to realize that we were shooting the entire movie in Toronto and in London. Right.
1: Well, if anyone sees the movie, they will suspend their disbelief and believe that it was New York, I I believe. And so. um, so I got to see the movie yesterday on the Universal lot. I loved it. I actually liked it better than the first one.
0: That's very kind. Of Which you. and
1: I and people love the first one. Everyone I've mentioned Kick-Ass two, they're like, I can't wait to see this because I love the first one. So I think if they love the first one, they'll like this one even more.
0: Well, I love the first movie too, and really a lot of credit goes to Matthew Vaughn, right? Uh, who wrote and directed the first one and and produced it and produced this one. And you know, very early on, we we had sort of a meeting of the minds, and you know, he picked me to make the movie, and and we agreed that um, you know it wasn't going to be a reboot or a reimagining like so many sequels are, right? That. You know, I love the first film. I saw the first film as a fan. I didn't know anybody involved in it when I saw it in theaters. Uh, But at the same time, we also agreed that this wasn't going to be one of those rinse and repeat sequels where you take the characters and just put them through the same (laughs) motions again, that we had to take these three characters, Dave, Mindy, and Chris, and we had to push them further, and we had to make sure that they went on a journey uh, that resulted in them being changed uh, uh, irreversibly.
1: Yeah. And that's what's fun about it, too. It's like you feel like it picks up where it left off, but it doesn't spend any time sort of in the first movie. It just goes. It starts from the beginning.
0: Yeah. And that's even a result of of, of editing largely because, you know, initially we did sort of recap the first film more and give the audience um, a more of a chance to kind of settle in and remember these characters. But as we were cutting it, just became clear, you know, we just need to drop people in and, and go. And yeah. I think that's ultimately what we did. I think everyone who goes to see Kick Ass 2 has seen Kick Ass 1. And by the way, even if you haven't, you kind of <laughs> get it really <laughs> quickly. You it's pretty like, much get it right away. Not that hard to figure out. We're dealing with a lot of sort of tropes of superhero movies. And so I think if you've seen a superhero movie, you kind of understand what's going on. But I like that the characters have seen all the
1: superhero movies too.
0: Yeah. That's what's really fun about it. Like they mentioned Stan Lee, they mentioned Spider Man. Yeah, I mean, that's why I love Kickass. You know, for me, I thought a lot about like, the tone of kick ass like how would you describe it and i actually think it's not dissimilar to scream in many yeah, ways it's you're right. there's an awareness of the genre but it also embraces the genre so it's not a parody we're never like selling out the stakes right we never create a situation where you're like oh this is a bunch of actors getting together and having a laugh like you believe in the characters you believe in the world you believe in the jeopardy but there is an awareness of the genre and, and we're saying to the audience basically We know, you know, the rules. So now let's have some fun breaking those rules. Yeah,
1: and the characters want to be real-life superheroes. Yeah, So we're watching the real life of people who've seen superhero movies. Um, So, like I said, people love the first one. It was written and directed by Matthew Vaughn, based on a comic book by Mark Millar and John Romita. And so I had heard a story that you wrote the script before they were even wanting to do a sequel. Is that a true story? Sort of.
0: (laughs) Basically what happened was, you know, four years have passed since the the first film was made. Right. And that's a lot of time, right, between two movies. And so I, I think there was a feeling that the sequel wasn't going to get made. And I think... Even though Matthew and Mark really wanted to do it, they were sort of stuck because Chloe was growing up very fast yeah. and the comic book Hit Girl still 11. They, I think they were sort of stymied by the fact that they, they, they wanted to make a sequel, but they couldn't really – it was getting harder and harder as more and more time passed. Right, And Matthew was also getting busier. He was working on X-Men. Um, so I, I, met him on another project, uh, and I, I, pitched him an idea that he really liked. And then I wrote the script and he really liked the script and he called me up and he said, um, so the script is just like your pitch. This is for a different project. And yeah. I said, well, yeah. And he, then he said, uh, so you do what you say you're going to do. And I was like, yeah. And then he said, uh, do you want to do Kick-Ass too?" And I was like, yeah. <laughs> wow. uh, and so we started talking about it, and, and I kind of embraced the idea that time had passed. Instead of right. viewing it as this sort of obstacle to the sequel, I, I kind of thought, why don't we make this the Raisin Detro for the sequel? Yeah. That, that basically we're, we're telling a uh, coming-of-age story, that yeah, we're going to exactly. show Mindy growing up, and we're going to show Dave and Chris growing up, and, and show how they've changed, and, and give them a chance to become adults, because in many ways, the first film is about kids playing superhero, right? right? Now, if they'd sort of figured out their alter egos in the first movie, I wanted to tell a story where they had to figure out who they really were right. as people. And so we talked about that, and, and Matthew seemed to like it, but then he got really busy, and I didn't hear from him for a while, and you know, I would had sort of pitched this idea to him, but nothing was happening. So without really a deal in place or a studio backing us yet, I just sat down and wrote the script. Uh, and sent it to That's him. a great idea. Yeah. And he was like, you wrote the script? And I was like, yeah. And he said, it's really good. We should make it. And I said, let's do it. And then, of course, I didn't hear anything from him <laughs> again for a while. So I actually went and, and worked on this TV show Bates Motel for yeah. a while and it was in the middle of working on that when he, when he called and he said, OK, we're going to make the movie. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, like no, in exciting. In Hollywood,
1: that's called a spec script. So you
0: basically wrote Kick-Ass 2 on spec? Yeah, kind, kind of. of. Kind of. I didn't have a deal in place, and I wasn't getting paid. If he, right. if he didn't like it or the movie didn't get made, I wouldn't have made a cent. Right. Um, so it could have been a colossal waste no, of time. No, but it was worth it. I mean, look, it paid off. But 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 I actually feel like if I hadn't done that, the movie would not have gotten made. Right, so that's what I was going to ask. Would, would there be a, a Kick-Ass sequel if you hadn't written that script? I mean, only really Matthew and Mark can answer that question, but my... There certainly wouldn't have been a movie made by me. Right. And so now you have the script. How do you convince them to have you direct it? Um, well, that's the upside of, of specking is I, I made it very clear from the outset. You know, I, I directed two movies before, um, and I wasn't going to write the script if I wasn't directing it. And, right. and again, to Matthew's credit, he uh, was excited about having a writer-director because he could have very easily, you know, gotten some writers to cut a draft and hired, like, a music video director to right. shoot it. But. You know, he, he said very uh, very early on, he was like, I want a writer-director to make this movie. I think the first Kick-Ass has such a distinct voice. I think a, a part of that is because Matthew is a writer-director, and and he knew if he wasn't going to make it, even though he wanted to continue the story and didn't want to reinvent the voice, he didn't want someone necessarily mimicking the voice. He wanted someone with their own point of view who brought their own ideas to the table. Right. And so I think he liked the idea of a, of a writer-director. Yeah, I do think you brought your voice
1: to it. I have to say, like, while I was watching it, like, this is a Jeff Wilder movie. Oh, but I, I'm also very familiar with your voice because I did work on Cry Wolf and then I did see your movie Never Back Down. Your next movie after that, and I felt like Kick Ass Two is kind of a hybrid of Cry Wolf and Never Back Down. There are definitely some, <laughs> in a, in a, in a, but it, that's cool because then you have a very distinct voice and a look to a movie, and you know you write smart teenagers. That's like a Jeff Wadlow thing, I think.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there are some there are some ideas that ser- certainly um, are threaded through all three films, but I don't. That's not really by design. It's just sort of a result of of who you are. You know, yeah. some people have asked me. If, um, you know, like I tried to put my own stamp on Kick-Ass and I tried to make sure it looked and felt different than than Matthew's movie. And the truth is I never made a concerted effort to do that. Right. But I think ultimately it does because you can – the only – I mean if you're going to make a movie and you're being honest about it, really the only voice that you can use is your own, right? Right. I couldn't really copy Matthew's voice because I'm not Matthew. Right. So I think all three of my films – I think there is a lot of me invested in those films because I don't know how, I don't know any other way to make a movie yeah. than other, than, other than investing myself 100% into the film.
1: Right, and so you had all these existing characters and you basically infused your voice into them. And they were growing
0: up too, so you didn't have to write the 11-year-old characters. You could write the 15-year-old characters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one theme that you can see in all three of those films is that they're very much about that critical moment in your life yes. and you have to decide what kind of person you're going to be. And you can no longer be defined by your parents or your friends or you know the groups that you're affiliated with that that we all reach a moment where we have to say no you know this is who i want to be and it's got to come from inside you and i think it's a moment we all face in our own lives so i think it's universal and relatable and so it's easily incorporated into these different genres
1: yeah and actually i was going to like speaking of smart teenagers and coming of age uh, i feel like that's something that's really important to you that teenagers sound smart
0: and like real teenagers Yeah, I mean, I just write them like real people and never try to write down uh, to my characters because I think, A, I think most teenagers are pretty savvy, and B... Certainly, the teenagers I want to spend two hours with, like watching their story unfold on screen, had better be savvy, or I think the audience is going to be bored by them.
1: Yeah, and I will say, Chloe's character, Mindy, is is in high school, so she encounters the Mean Girls, which I think you've taken what we saw in the Mean Girls movie to a whole new level with these three girls. And but they talk in the way because we had written stuff together with teenage characters in the yeah. past. I know how sort of your brain works with that, and you had them speak in like those abbreviations, like totes and adorbs. And yeah. you must have had a lot of fun writing those. They, they were fun girls. to write.
0: Look, uh, and some credit definitely goes to these uh, two other writers I work with, Chad and Dara Creasy, uh, because um, you know I was scrambling to finish the script, the rewrites, while we were prepping the movie, and they came on for a week. Oh, nice. Uh, and they're actually particularly good at writing teenage girls and so they of helping with those scenes. Yeah. Some of those lines come from them. Very funny. Yeah, yeah. But, I, I mean, another thing with those characters that was fun to write those, those mean girls is that Early on, I decided they needed to be more vile than like the worst supervillains or criminals, <laughs> right. and so I just you know to really go for it and just to make them just truly evil, just dark, dark souls. Yeah, uh, was fun to embrace because they look like these perfect little princesses, but they're saying just the most horrible, wretched things. Whose idea was the boy band video? Because well, people originally, see the movie, yeah, yeah, no, One of one of the ideas for the movie was that I wanted to show that it's not just like Dave and his friends that are influenced by superheroes that. Teenage girls are equally influenced by pop culture. Right. Uh, Very influenced. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That it's not, you know, it's not just the domain of the of the comic book geeks. And so initially that scene actually had them watching uh, Twilight. Like, and I had this whole riff on, like, Taylor Lautner taking off his shirt. And, right. and that's what was sort of the moment that, uh, that sent Mindy on her way <laughs> towards womanhood. Right. Um, but then I started thinking about, like, you know, I... I Sort of pop culture and and, and wanting to incorporate something into the film that wasn't another movie. Right. Um, And also, some had said no. So, uh, (laughs) there's that. Uh, So, you know, started actually, and this, the credit goes to Matthew Vaughn on this one. He said, you know, well, what about a boy band? And so I started thinking about that and. And I thought actually having a song in there would be really fun, you know, because the music was a big part of the first movie. And, right. And, and also I think it's important to have a really eclectic sound for the for the film. So I thought it was an opportunity to pull a different genre of music. Yeah, and the, you got to direct a Boy band video within the movie. Yeah, I actually didn't direct that. Um, I, I went to the shoot and, like, told them what I needed <laughs> for right. the video. It's very funny. But I didn't direct it. Yeah, it, it, it's quite funny. It's and, like
1: One Direction meets Justin Bieber but super sexualized. Yeah, yeah, and, and the guys really went for it. <laughs> and, like, point Pouring water on themselves. Yeah, I know. It's funny. totally ridiculous and over the top. <laughs> yeah. um But the, who wrote the song? The song, what is it It's All, Union All it's Carry you? J.
0: Yeah, Carry You. It's by this great Brit band. Oh, uh, it's a real song? Yeah, 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 yeah. And the band's called Union J. Oh, Union J is a real band? Yeah, yeah. They came out of X Factor. Oh, They're like I thought, you know, poised I, to be the next One Direction, potentially. That's so funny. I thought you came up with. No, that. no, no, no. They're a real act. They're a real no act. No way.
1: Yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. Well, yeah, that scene. Not to get too much away, but in that scene, those girls watch the video and have a uh, visceral reaction.
0: Yeah, you know the, the, the video is online, but in a weird way, they take. Oh, it that on, that video is real. Yeah, Wait. Yeah, no, they and they do it with the handles with the bedroom scene with the girls, wow. and in a weird way, taking out of context, <laughs> it actually really changes sort of the intention of the scene. Um, I think when people see it in the movie, they'll understand that, it, that it's supposed to be quite satirical.
1: Yeah, I want to say one of the lines, but I'll let people see the movie. <laughs> I don't want to give it away. But actually, um, before you get back to talking about the movie, uh, I was going to say that from project working on developing projects with you in the past, you gave me all these tips that I think you ended up using in this movie and previous stuff you've done. Um, and it, So it's like the Jeff Waddle film school that I <laughs> went to, but it's stuff that I still use when I write scripts. It's, uh, you always talk about a dialogue should move at a clip. Yeah. I think I got that phrase from you. And it's just, like, snappy dialogue. Yeah. How, like, don't let people talk for too long. It's, like, back, forth, back, forth. And it's the same since Cry Wolf. I felt like this movie had
0: the same film. I wish I could take credit for that. That's really more of, like, a David Mamet kind of thing. It's just you think about the way people talk, and nobody really talks, unless you're doing a podcast. And, uh, <laughs> and sort of monologues are these sort of longer, uh, more flowery, you know— uh, pieces of dialogue i I prefer sort of punchy fast dialogue because i think that's that's often the way you talk in real life yeah
1: and people sort of speak on top of each other yeah so that's something i still use um another thing that you taught me was that um if there's a cliche you should turn it on its head and you do that with cry wolf and so i still do that and i felt like you did it in this you took you know what we would expect to happen like in the cafeteria scene which i also won't say what happens but there's a cafeteria scene and we think we know what's going to happen and it goes to a place that i never
0: saw coming yeah, it's sort of it's, it's the it's definition crazy. of over-the-top. I mean, look, yeah, but it's I, I'm a big believer that cliches exist for a reason. So it's like, own them. You know? like, say to the audience, look, we know this is a cliché, so either we're going to lean into it or we're going to flip it. But we're going to do something with it, and we're going to acknowledge that, you, that you're that you aware of it. It's, a, it's right. a sort of an active storytelling as opposed to a passive storytelling.
1: Yeah, I think that actually goes back to your Scream comparison, which I hadn't thought of, but which now makes a lot of sense because everyone thinks they know what to expect, and then it... It gives them a
0: little twist. It, it's fun again. It, like you're giving the audience credit, you know, for yeah. for having seen a lot of films and understanding you know, film in general. So you're basically saying the audience, we know, you know what's about to happen, so let's either flip it or embrace it or push it in a way that you weren't expecting. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's also another scene early on where a parent is uh, accidentally killed and I, no one sees that coming. Yeah, It's like an argument between a child and his parent and yeah, yeah. And it well, ends that was, in tragedy. Yeah,
0: that happens early on. It yeah. was, uh, that was my invention, yeah. but it was just part of like a trying to answer the question of why now. It's funny, I just did the DVD commentary uh, this morning, um, the oh, deleted did? scenes. Oh wow! And on the DVD, there's going to be a whole alternate opening. Like originally, the movie began a different way, and we shot it that way because um, it was there was such a debate about like how should this movie begin? You know, four years of passion in the real life in the real world, but in the in the comic book, the Kickass two begins the day after Kickass one. Mm. We had to figure out a way to. We couldn't say it was the next day, obviously, but we also couldn't really say it was four years later. And so there's just lots of questions about how to begin this movie. And one of the ways we kick it off is that scene that you're referencing where uh, one of our characters loses a, a parent in, in a comedic fashion. right? Um, but it, it was tough to figure that out for all three of our leads. And, yeah. and we ultimately didn't really find it till we were in post. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. I liked it. I, and actually, dude, what about the opening, opening scene? There's an opening scene that felt like, you know, later we see pieces yeah. of it again in a montage, but I kind of like that it's sort of non-sequitur opening.
0: Yeah, that was a scene that very early on I wanted to do. And, and at first, Mark and Matthew kind of pushed back a little bit because they thought it was too evocative of the first film, but I thought it was a nice way to say, like, no, you know, we we know that you know the first film is great, and and now we're sort of you know taking it to the next level. And I think I did a draft where we actually opened with that scene. Uh, then ultimately, it got buried sort of deeper into the training. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, when we were trying to reinvent the beginning uh, in post, I had the idea to pull it up again, and it, and it worked quite nicely.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a way to say like it's it's another kick-ass movie, but we've grown up exactly. a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And so. Um, uh, the other thing I was going to say, another tip that you gave me back in the day was to always uh, push the envelope and be as edgy as people will let you be because I have a tendency to write a little soft and yeah. care- carefully. Yeah. But I appreciate when, like, when I see Kick-Ass 2 that these characters speak as um, candidly as they do about certain things. I think it makes for a better movie. So that was great advice.
0: Well, I mean, it's ultimately about telling the truth, right? You know, people want to see the truth, you know, the, the, the honest emotion, the truth of the of the scene. They want to hear it spoken because... I think um otherwise it just starts to feel like bullshit
1: yeah and the la and the last um it tip that i'll offer for aspiring screenwriters is something you told me to do is uh characters should answer a question with a question and i still do that and i hear it i in don't your really movies. remember doing like, saying like that. if someone asks a question like respond with a question kind I think of. that's based on like it's a- just like a fun thing to do
0: yeah there's like an improv game i remember doing in college where you try to do a whole scene just with questions yeah you know i, I- But I I, still do it. I still do it. I don't remember that necessarily being a rule, but it's certainly a good (laughs) way to get through a scene.
1: Yeah, but it's a fun... It's another kind of twist that you don't see coming. Yeah. You know, it keeps it fun. So, um... So let's talk about the experience making Kick-Ass 2. So yesterday I see it at Universal. It's a, now it's a big Universal movie. Everyone in the theaters was laughing. People, were, One that's girl great. was really, she loved the Donald Faison character. She was like falling out How of the How many her people
0: were in the in uh the Well, audience? it's one of
1: those small screening rooms, yeah. Theater 3 on the okay. lot. But, okay. but you know, I don't know, 100, 100 yeah. maybe, yeah. 7,500. Yeah. But everyone was laughing when they were supposed to laugh. I was I, I sat in the back row so I could watch everything. Oh, nice. um, but um But the whole drive to Universal, every billboard, every bench, and every bus that passed me was kick-ass while I'm on my way to the movie. Well,
0: you know they do that on purpose. Right. On the way to Universal, yeah. All all the studios <laughs> they buy the billboards closest to their studio, so that when That's executives and people are coming to their studio, they <laughs> see their own movies up right. on billboards. I've always thought that, but I never yeah. got confirmation. No, but true. the buses they couldn't control. The I mean, buses they couldn't control. And look, <laughs> I, I, I'm a, you know it's funny. I, I said that, and it sounds like I'm denigrating Universal, but the truth is they've done an amazing job marketing it all the way back to the very first trailer. I mean. That that trailer was the most viewed trailer that has ever premiered on MTV.com. Really? Yeah, and 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 I think it has a lot to do with how good the trailer really was. I mean, they've done an outstanding job of sort of distilling the message of the film and saying to everyone, "Look, you guys love the first kick-ass, and if you didn't even if you didn't even see it, you're gonna love the second kick-ass. Yeah, here it is." And. Uh, my hat's really off to those guys for doing such an outstanding job. Yeah,
1: and I think MTV is the right target audience for it, especially the second one even more than the first, because the characters are a little older. Um, So tell me about your experience working on it. Like, what was it like directing a franchise movie that you
0: got to take over? Yeah, I mean, it was, wow, I don't even know really where to (laughs) begin. It was an intense experience. You know, I was in London for a whole year working on it and, and leaving your home for a year. Is an interesting proposition. You, it's you know, you're not really moving, but at the same time, it's not like an extended trip. I mean, it's a it's a year is a long time, so it's sort of like a sabbatical. Um, so everything pre production was out there, post production was out there. I was the only American working on the movie. Really? Yeah, it's a, it's a British film. I mean, it's financed <laughs> in sterling. Um, the crew is all British. At the Oscars, is it eligible for best foreign film? <laughs> <Or is considered? laughs> I guess it could be in wow. theory. I don't think there's a chance in hell it'll be nominated. well um, But yeah. I, It was an intense experience, but I was really lucky in that Matthew Vaughn was just the perfect producing partner for me because he is a filmmaker and so you know he never came to set and he never came into editorial but he looked at cuts and i talked to him you know on the phone almost every day and so he he gave me the freedom to make my movie and he said you got to make your movie but at the same time he was always there for me and always gave me advice and just sort of mentored me through the whole process so i am incredibly grateful to him
1: and it's cool that he handed the franchise over to you because it could could have been
0: something that he tried to stick with for three movies or yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just, you know, he, he started as a producer. He was Guy Ritchie's producing partner. And, right. and he can wear both hats, you know. And it, it, it's hard to do to to jump back and forth like that, but he can do it, you know, better than anyone. Else. Yeah,
1: he actually left X Men 3 and Brett Ratner took over. That's how I got to work on X Men 3. Exactly. So we have our Matthew Vaughn yeah. <laughs> history moving out of the way for other people. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about the cast because it's such an awesome cast. And you, it's kind of cool to go into Kick Ass 2 because.
0: The, a lot of the key roles are already cast and you know who you're writing for. Yeah, but what was interesting about that is none of them were signed on for the sequel. Their sequel options had all lapsed, ah. and there was actually some some rumblings that they weren't going to do the sequel, um, but I wrote the script anyway, and, and fortunately, you know, when Chloe and Aaron and Chris all read the script, uh, they got excited and said they were in. Um, cuz they were not obligated to. This isn't one this is not like the Marvel films, you know, right. where they had signed 17 options. They right. they were not obligated to do it. That's very cool actually. So your script you know, you wrote it
1: without your deal and without any actor deals in place.
0: Yeah, it was scary. Blind faith. At a certain point you got to uh only ask for forgiveness and not permission. You <laughs> yeah. Know? You just got to jump.
1: And well, make it happen. so let's talk about the actor. So Aaron Taylor Johnson is the lead. Yep. He plays kick ass. Uh, he has this very unique ability to be cool and a dork at the same time. It's phenomenal. It's nuts.
0: And, and it, I'm trying to think how to say it, how I should say this. His ability to... Uh, as an actor to approach a movie as a storyteller is really quite inspiring. So many actors, I think when they first look at their character, they only see the story through their character's eyes, you know, and they, and they think about how their character is going to be perceived in every scene by the audience. Right. But Aaron approached the film, uh, you know, from with more of a bird's eye view, really thinking about the story that we're telling. And a perfect example is, of this is, you know, we talked about how we we're going to arc Dave out, how when we would meet him at the beginning of the film, he would be sort of in the same place, you know, emotionally. Where we left him at the end of the first movie, even though two, two and a half years have passed. Uh, and so Aaron just latched onto that and insisted on having like the nerdiest, most awful uh, sneakers you can imagine. He wanted the same like terrible bull haircut. Yeah. He even got the exact uh, pair of glasses that he wore in the first film. Wow. And he just wanted to look like the the dorkiest possible version of Dave so that we could really feel that journey because that would be where we would see him in the beginning and then his commitment uh, to getting like shredded and looking like a real action hero. He looks like a heartthrob. Yeah, for the end of the movie was just inspiring. I mean, he worked his ass off. You You know, he you don't wake up with abs like that right i mean he really 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 worked hard uh, and what's funny about the marking materials is they do show aaron from the end of the movie and all the materials and everyone's like oh he's just a he's just turned into like some sort of badass want to be like hollywood heartthrob now but when you see the movie you'll see that he doesn't start off no. that way at all i mean he is the dorky dave lazuski you love and remember yeah
1: and his character goes through a lot in this movie i mean you definitely raise the stakes for him
0: yeah no, in terms he, of his life he changes in in so many different ways and and Aaron, I think, articulated it beautifully. Yeah, he's a great actor.
1: I think he's going to have a big career. And then
0: uh, your female lead is Chloe Grace Moretz, yep. we've mentioned.
1: She plays Mindy, also known as Hit Girl. That's her real-life superhero alter ego. Um, I think Chloe's one of the most talented actresses that age. She has oh, yeah. to be, right? Well, I mean, she's it's, like, like why is beyond her years? I can't believe she's 15 or 16. She's,
0: yeah, she's like a prodigy. <laughs> right. You know, like in a, a, her EQ is just off the charts. You know, normally I, I find I... I like to talk to actors about a scene and sort of talk about the emotional uh, stakes of the scene or sort of, you know, how, how they should change or maybe what they should be feeling or thinking about. And with Chloe, you didn't really have to do that. You know, I would often just sort of see what she would brought, uh, what she would bring on the first take and then start to talk to her about it. And I mean, if anything, I would actually sometimes try to throw her off a little bit because she's just so good (laughs) that, uh, you know, you want to kind of put her on her back foot and see what happens because, um... You know, when when you're when you see someone who's that talented, you know, you you, you want to push them even further. Do you do a lot of takes? Are you a director that does a lot? Yeah, of Yeah, I do a lot of takes. I do a lot, <laughs> as many as they'll let you. Uh, I yeah. guess. Uh, um, I you know I I've uh, had like a mentor relationship with Warren Beatty for a little while. Oh, That's right. And he gave me some advice on directing. He said, uh, "Be greedy." I remember that. I think you told me that. as many shots and as many takes as you can possibly get. Yeah. Because when you're in an an editorial months later, you're never going to say, oh, we got too much footage. You (laughs) only say, oh, I wish I'd gotten this shot or, oh, I wish i had gone one more take. So, yeah, I do a lot of takes. As long as you have the budget that allows for as many takes. Yeah, you just got to push. Yeah. Because working with
1: Ratner, one of the jokes on set was always one more. He'd always say one more even if there were 20 more. Yeah. No,
0: actually on Never Back Down, the crew actually made a baseball cap for me with a line that i used to say all the time which was that was great now let's go one more time really quickly (laughs) right
1: really quickly right um well i was gonna say about chloe too so she's 16 in real life she was probably 15 when you made the movie the character's 15 correct which is nice to see a character who's 15 played by an actress who's
0: 15 yeah yeah (laughs) because sometimes the actress is 30 that was a big part of my pitch was like let's tell the story of mindy growing up and i think in many ways it parallels chloe's story
1: yeah, and so you talk about the audition scene, like they're auditioning for uh, the dance team or cheerleading yeah. team. Yeah, um, that was pretty intense too. So this character Brooke goes first, and hers is like really sexy. So outrageous. Yeah, which was also I was like, okay, this is Jeff Wilder. Yeah. Here. And uh, this girl Claudia Lee plays his character, and it's just Great. it's like as as envelope pushing as you can do in that scene
0: well, with for high it, school. I was thinking Try a lot out. about – remember Mean Girls when, like, they walk into uh, Regina George's house and her, like, little sister is doing like, yeah. strip aerobics right. to, like, you know, my milkshake. And <laughs> yeah. I just think of, like, sort of the over-sexualization yeah. of, of the lives of these young girls. And, you know, we're leaning into that to comedic effect. And the song we're actually using was suggested <laughs> by the choreographer. I couldn't believe I, it was a real song. I mean, it was I just so it's so shocking. Dirty. It's called Pussy Drop. And you're just like, – <laughs> You just, you can't believe that act, you know, that there's a song actually called that. Right it sounds like a Beyonce song or something. <laughs> Beyonce does not sing it, no. but it sounds like one. It's sung by this artist named Levin, but it's sort of perfect for uh, Brooke's little dance And soundtrack. it's
1: very funny that she uses it at high school like, with, and no one sort of bats an eye because she's Brooke. I know, she's cares, yeah. Yeah. Um, But I was going to say that Chloe's character, Mindy, then goes on to ch- for her tryout and she fantasizes that um, she's fighting all these guys in order to inspire yeah. herself to do the moves and it was awesome the way it goes back and forth to her fantasy and what's rea- what the reality of
0: it. Yeah, that was a sequence that was that I kind of came up with pretty late in the game. Originally, there was a, a sequence where she was going to go on a date and, and some guys were going to like try to intimidate her and she was going to get in a fight with, with these sort of jocks, but she wasn't going to be in her Hit Girl outfit. And I really felt like we wanted to see Hit Girl in the middle of the movie, but Chloe's given up being, Mindy's given up being Hit Girl at this yeah. point. By the way, these are some spoilers. I know, um, don't give too many away. Um, you don't have to give those away. And, and so it, it, I was trying to think how she could also ingratiate herself with with the Mean Girls, and, and her athletic ability is obviously very impressive. So it was sort of a great confluence of ideas uh, that resulted in a scene that I think checked a lot of boxes.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminded me of American Beauty a little bit—the Minisvarri cheerleading tryout fantasy thing. Yeah. I think yeah. There was something about it that reminded me of that.
0: Look, I love going inside the minds of, of characters because I think it's a great way to visualize, you know, their their inner life. I mean, that seems like an obvious thing to say, but <laughs> yeah, it, it's tough when I'm working on scripts. I can't tell you how many times, you know. I've shown them to people, and they're like, "Isn't this a little surreal? Isn't this? Can you really do this in this film?" And I think, look, we all visualize things in our mind that aren't in reality. I think it's really interesting to, to take the audience inside the character's mind because it only brings you closer to them.
1: Yeah, and it's not—it's done not with a dream sequence. It's within the like. Their daily life. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's something we I didn't in Crywolf and Never Back Down too, where we were able to really get inside what the what our lead characters inside the minds of our lead
1: characters. Yeah, and I brought that up because I think her fight sequences are really impressive. But with Chloe's performance, I think it's even uh, more impressive because she's doing the angsty high school teen, and it, she has really comedic moments, but also really dramatic moments where she's bullied and hurt. And so I think from a performance
0: standpoint, she really got to run the gamut of everything. Action, comedy, drama. Yeah, I mean, that is the tonal tightrope that is kick-ass. You know, Uh, the first film did such a beautiful job of balancing, you know, action humor and honest emotion and and i sort of felt that that was my mandate for the sequel that i had to balance all three of those things but push them further and i was really fortunate in that chloe aaron and chris were able to do all three of those things so well
1: yeah well let's talk about chris so chrisman's class he's back as chris and uh You've done something amazing for him with this movie, I think, because in 2007, he did super bad and everywhere he's gone since 2007, everyone calls him McLovin. Yeah. But I think for the first time, everywhere he goes, he'll have a new name.
0: Yeah, they'll be shouting, hey, motherfucker. Exactly. Uh, for His- those of you who don't know, he, he, he was Red Mist in the first film, but in this film... He decides to become the world's first supervillain, a story that's supposed to parallel Dave's from the first movie when he, he wanted to become the first real-life superhero. Right. Uh, and he obviously believes that Red Mist is his superhero name, so he's got to dump it. And he wants a supervillain name, and so he says, henceforth, I'll be known as the motherfucker. And his costume is? Is this, like, ridiculous s and riff. Um, Dominatrix. Yeah, that's, that's based on some, some gear he finds in his <laughs> mom's closet and he, he finds his dad's guns And there. It's sort of a, he sort of feels like that's his destiny coming together. Right. And, I, and by the way, you know, I have to say all the credit for that n- character's name goes to Mark Miller. I mean, he is a twisted genius. Uh, and to have created a superhero franchise where your lead is called Kick Ass and then have to come up with a supervillain name uh, <laughs> that sort of ups the stakes. You know, that's no small feat, and I think Mark did it, you know, just crushed it by uh, by changing Chris's name to The Motherfucker. The Motherfucker, right.
1: And so I think he's also reinvented himself from the super bad days. I think he will finally grow out of it now with Kick-Ass 2.
0: What's interesting about Kick-Ass 2 is he, he is so funny in the movie, I yeah. think. I mean, he's just laugh-out-loud funny, but he's also quite scary and demented, and—, and you know, all the credit goes to Chris, and actually, this this acting coach that I've worked with on all my films, Lee Kilton Smith. Oh, yeah. She worked with uh, me and Chris um, to to help create that performance, and and I think it has a lot to do with the way we arc his character out. You know, we get a lot of his laughs early on, and then there's this turning point where he goes dark, and he really sort of. Puts the movie in fifth gear and he becomes quite scary from that point on. Yeah, it's
1: actually really cool to take a character that we know who's not a villain and not a bad guy and all of a sudden he's the villain in this movie. Yeah. It's cool. And so uh, Clark Duke is also back as Marty. Clark Duke. He is so funny. So funny.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know he gets to do a lot more in this movie. Um, and he was just excited to be there, and I was so thrilled that he that he signed on. That again. he came
1: back, and Lindsay
0: Fonseca is Katie, the yep. girlfriend. Yeah, she's not in a ton of the film. She's in a, a little bit of the film, yeah, but, but she's back and it threads it through from yeah, the first. Yeah, time. I thought it was important to have her there, and it's uh, a testament to Lindsay just being game that yeah. she came back for those few scenes. You know, I mean, at a certain point, uh, there are some people on the production side who were like, "Is it even worth bringing Katie back?" But just as a fan of the first film, I loved Lindsay in it, and I wanted to uh, sort of uh, finish telling the story of Lindsay. And yeah, I am sorry, sorry, Katie and
1: Dave. Well, yeah, I think it's important too because it starts out he has a girlfriend, and that's his girlfriend. Yeah, and so, and also she's on Nikita, which was also like a fighting show, and so she's sort of yeah. you know in that world now. Yeah. Um, so now I want to talk about. It. So Nicolas Cage was in the first Kick Ass. He was like the big name in the first Kick Ass. He played Damon, Mindy's father, also known as Big Daddy. Did not survive for the sequel. He's in a picture frame Yeah, in this one. Well, you feel um, his
0: presence, definitely. Absolutely. In the film. Yeah,
1: his costume is there. Yeah, his picture looming. is there. Yeah, I like it. Uh, it looks very much like the Batman costume behind, oh, yeah, behind yeah. glass. It's a very dark night. And um, so in Kick Ass 2, the big movie star you guys got on board was Jim Carrey.
0: Yes, he plays Colonel Stars and Stripes. Did he, you
1: invent that character? Was no, no, it no. no that was in book? the
0: comic book. Um, but I sort of always thought of him. As a uh, kind of the kick-ass version of Captain America, you know Big yeah. Daddy and Hickerel are the yes. kick-ass version of Batman and Robin, right. and Kick Ass is the kick-ass version of Spider Man. So for me, the Colonel is very much our version of captain america so that means he is intensely patriotic and he has these lofty ideals but at the same time you know we're always kind of taking the piss out of him because that's what kick ass does right
1: and so um how does jim carrey come on board Kickass ass 2 would you say it started as an independent film
0: yeah i mean i always knew i wanted jim or an actor of his caliber to play the role i wanted someone who could who had the comedic chops but also could be really intense yeah um and that's a that's a very short list and jim was at the top of it and so uh, I kind of let his agency know that, that I was interested, and we knew that he liked the, the franchise because he yeah, dressed how up. Yeah, that? Well, he dressed up as Kick-Ass and went on Conan O'Brien a couple years ago. That's right. That's so right. So we knew he liked the first movie, so we got on the phone with him and just started talking to him about it, and he, uh, he jumped in, and, and he— he brought it, man. You know, he was really committed to the film. You know, I said to him early on, I really wanted him to disappear into the role. And like the next time we got on the phone, he was like, "Yeah, I'm going to do prosthetics." And I was like, "Whoa, no, I didn't mean that." Because right. you know, for those of you who don't know, when an actor is in prosthetics, that means hours and hours in a makeup chair before he can start shooting. Right. And for a low budget movie, that's got to do a lot every day. That was just something that I, I didn't imagine that we could handle. Uh, but to Jim's credit, he said, "Look, you know, I'll pay for them out of my fee, and I'll come in early so that we don't." lose any shooting time and you know Well, so he has a different
1: nose but he still looks like Jim Carrey
0: you would be shocked you know we showed the movie to a couple audiences during the rough cut stage just to get some feedback and I would say each time we showed it there was at least a portion of the audience that didn't realize after (laughs) the movie was over that the colonel was played by Jim Carrey really yeah
1: well, I guess you want him to look as much as he can like Jim Carrey for promotional reasons and stuff like that when you yeah. put Jim Carrey's face on something. I think on something. you
0: tell people it's Jim Carrey and you can see it, but I think if you don't know it's Jim Carrey, you don't necessarily know.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's true. Well, I Because he, he
0: changes his voice. Yeah, he you know does have like a Brooklyn accent. Yeah, kind yeah. Of. Well, because the idea was that he was sort of this former mob enforcer that found Jesus. Right. And so that's why he became a real-life superhero. Yeah. And, and the prosthetics are more extreme than you think. He had a fake nose. He had a fake brow. He had a fake jaw. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. he's wearing, like, a muscle suit that makes him look, like, twice his size. (laughs) Right, he looks huge. I mean, it's a a pretty significant transformation.
1: Also, I grew up a big Jim Carrey fan. I mean, Living Color, Ace Ventura, Dumb Uh, and Dumber, Liar, Liar, the list goes on. But uh, Truman Show I love. Yeah, Truman Um, Show,
0: Eternal Sunshine, the number 23. I mean, like, he has this intense side to him, too, and that's what I wanted from The Colonel. I wanted the comedic chops, but I also wanted someone who could bring the intensity. But as a
1: director, see, for me, I would be, I think, a little starstruck on day one directing Jim Carrey.
0: I was a little bit but you gotta get over it pretty quickly Yeah, or you're not gonna make your job.
1: <laughs> right. But that's a pretty that's a big name to have on board.
0: Yeah. Although and and I definitely changed the way I directed a little bit with him because he brings so many ideas to the table and and I knew that's what was gonna happen um just based on our initial phone calls, you know, we were talking about dialogue and he would add some ideas for some riffs and for example the, the creed, you know, when, when we're the cameras like spinning around the table and the yeah. team is saying, When the cops can no longer protect and serve uh, Jim wrote that whole creed really? and, like, emailed it to me and was like, is there a place in the movie for this? And I was like, uh, I'll find one. Oh, that's and, um, awesome. And then even sometimes on set, you know, some of my favorite lines that are in the movie were either uh, improvs that we, we, like, batted around, like, while we were waiting for the, the the set to turn around, or some stuff he just, like, came up literally in the moment. Like, the there's a dog on your balls, that moment that's on yeah. the trailers. That, oh, that's funny. I mean, he was almost breaking character when he said that, because, like, we were shooting it, and... And Benedict Wong, who plays Mr. Kim, was like, "Oh!" oh. And Jim just sort of <laughs> broke character for a moment. He was like, "He just—he's like—he's like, this is the most ridiculous scene ever." And he was just like, "Yeah, yeah, there's a dog on your balls." And he kept it in. Yeah, no, it's in—it's in every trailer. It's in the movie. Yeah,
1: Jim Carrey's character uh, trains a dog using a hot dog. That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah. and people will see how he does that. Yeah. Um, so Jim Carrey. So can we talk about this? His tweet about the movie.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, here's the thing about Jim Carrey. We love him in movies because you never know what he's going to do or say. And I'm I'm here to tell you that in real life, you never know what he's going to do or say. So I was quite surprised by the tweets. Well, let
1: me, I'll read the tweet. So it's just one tweet, uh, or two tweets. But he said, when was this? June 23rd. Almost a month and a half. So he said, I did kick ass a month before Sandy Hook, and now in all good conscience, I cannot support that level of violence. My apologies to others involved with the film. I'm not ashamed of it, but recent events have caused a change in my heart. So... How do you respond to that?
0: Um, I don't. You know, I, I think Jim is a great artist and he's certainly entitled to opinions and he's entitled to change them. Um, I can tell you when we made the movie, he was 110% on board. Uh, he, he read the script. Everything that's in the movie was in the script, so he clearly has had a change in his heart. Um, Ultimately, I feel his performance speaks for itself, and I think people should see the movie and judge for themselves.
1: Yeah, I agree with that, and and also I think you know the violence in the movie is done in a way where it's um, you know the good guys win. It's, it doesn't seem like what he's referring to, which is like a bad guy.
0: It's not senseless, gratuitous. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, gratuitous. It is, look, it is sometimes gratuitous, but to a, like a point. It's but not, in a comic book, what? I would say it's not exploitive. Right. I would say it's not exploitive. And in an interesting way, I think it deals with violence more realistically than a lot of films because, you know, a lot of these, like, PG-13, um, you know, because we're rated R. A lot of these yes, PG-13 I noticed that have, you're rated have R. heroes running around with assault rifles that never run out of ammunition, and they're shooting people, and nobody seems to bleed or die or get hurt. And it's just this massive, like, gun battle explosion fest. but. What we say in our movie is, you know, look, if you're going to go out and you're going to take on bad guys, bad guys who have guns, you're going to get shot and people are going to get hurt and people you care about might even die. Right. So we're definitely exploring the consequences of violence in an honest manner.
1: Yeah. And it's good guys versus bad guys. They're at, yeah. They're chasing yeah. the bad guys. Yeah, but
0: Bad things happen to the good guys, you know, and we're, you know nobody gets out of this movie unscathed.
1: Right. That's true. Um, so and you mentioned it that it's rated R. I will say it's definitely rated R. And I think there's something for guys and girls in that way. There's hot girls for the guys, and there's the mean girls aspect for girls. I think that'll bring them out there to see it. But um, there's some nudity too, which yeah, I guess there's a
0: little bit of nudity. There's a lot of with, violence. with um, the, the motherfucker character. He's yeah. in a hot tub with some naked. Ladies. Well, I mean, the point of that scene was to, like show. Just how crazy rich this guy is <laughs> right. and that, that he is willing to go to the most ridiculous extremes because ultimately, you know, he builds his evil army and he hires these heavy hitters and we wanted to start kind of setting up that he ha- that he's so affluent that he can literally do anything he wants.
1: Right. But I think it's also a throwback to the, like, 80s movies that we grew up with. You know, yeah,
0: like, a little bit. It's more a, a glimpse into Chris's mind. Right. Like, you know, if you're this rich and your parents aren't around, what are you going to do with your money? Right.
1: That's true. And so uh, a couple other characters I want to talk about. So Lindy Booth, she plays a new character, Night Bitch. Now, is, was that in the comic book? Or yeah, you- yeah.
0: No, the, the entire Justice Forever team is in the okay. comic book. It's more Chris's team that I really had to flesh out for the movie. Okay. Uh, a big part of the comic book and the movie is this idea that kick-ass starts a real-life superhero movement that spreads, that other people want to put on suits and uh, be superheroes, and that's personified in the film by uh, – Jim is the colonel and, and the team that, that Dave ultimately joins. And some of the key members of the team include Night Bitch, played by Lindy Booth. Right. And uh, there's a character named Battle Guy, who I, and I will not tell you who plays him. Right. And then there's a another character named Donald um, sorry, named Doctor Gravity, played by Donald Faison.
1: <laughs> right. And in 2010 you created a TV show called The Odds that Donald Faison yeah. was the star. Of-
0: both, both Lindy Booth and Donald Faison I've worked with before.
1: Yeah, well uh, Lindy, I know through you have ten years ago, she was the star of your movie Cry Wolf. Yeah, she so she I've w- known her for ten years.
0: She was in my first film, Cry Wolf, and Donald was in my first TV show, actually, that I did. Was it two or three years ago? I can't remember exactly. Three years ago. Three years ago. It was a (laughs) pilot that we shot for CBS that didn't get on the air. Um, But I'm really grateful to the uh, two of them for doing the movie. Because, again, it was a British film, so it was sort of mandated that I had to hire British actors for those roles. But because I had pre-existing relationships with Lindy and Donald, they were more than willing to come over to London and, uh, and work with us to to make it work. Very cool.
1: Yeah, and people will know Lindy, too, from October Road, which I love that show on ABC. Yeah, Scott played. Rosenberg is one of my favorite writers. Played pizza girl. The pizza girl, girl on that show. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk more about – actually, well, I'll say this quickly, but I just remember working with you on, on uh, Cry Wolf that the lead female character, um, Dodger, was very hard to cast. You saw every girl in Hollywood who could play a high school senior back in 2003. Yeah. And Lindy was like the last actress that well, she you wasn't met. even in Hollywood. We met no, her yeah, in no. Toronto. Toronto, a uh, month later.
0: I mean, it was a tough part to cast because it was sort of a, a femme fatale in high school, and you wanted someone as appealing as a classic femme fatale, but you wanted someone that you believe could pull off this sort of larger... Uh, plan yeah. the scheme and um,
1: I mean I remember all of these those meetings like it was uh, yesterday I can remember it but it was it, but it was cool that you didn't just settle For whoever was around or available, you waited, and then, like, a month after every other role was cast, you met Lindy and maybe a couple other actors at the Toronto Film Festival and then cast her as Dodger.
0: Oddly, you know, it comes back to Universal, too. Everything's connected. Yes. uh, We were – that film was going to be released by Universal, and an executive there said – a guy named Jeff LaPlante said, you should really check out this actress, Lindy Booth, who just did Dawn of the Dead for us. Right. And so while you know, I'd kinda of given up on casting the party and know what we we're gonna do. I was starting to prep the movie in Richmond and I shot up to Toronto for the film festival. We had obligations there for the Chrysler million dollar film festival. And I saw a couple actresses, and one of them was Lindy, and, and she knocked it out of the park. Yeah,
1: and you're still working with her. Yeah,
0: no, I was thrilled to be working with
1: her again. Yeah, and so a couple other actors I want to mention. John Logazamo, Javier, that's yep. a new character. Yep. Um, that, that is
0: a character I invented. Oh, really? It's not in the comic.
1: Explain who he is. He's
0: in So Chris's Javier landmark. plays Chris's bodyguard. <laughs> right. And basically, I, I just needed someone else for Chris to talk to. Yeah. Um, and I needed someone who could sort of enable his bad habits while at the same time keeping, you know, trying to keep his feet on the ground. Uh, and which sets up a, a critical turning point for Chris in the middle of the movie.
1: Yeah, and it's fun because he does the Batman reference. He call, yeah. he calls him his... Uh,
0: yeah, he is very much the evil Alfred. Yeah, his Alfred. To, uh, he's the Alfred to Chris's evil Bruce Wayne. Yeah, yeah exactly. And Morris Chestnut from Boys in the Hood plays Marcus. Yeah, yeah, no, he, he uh, Morris came on to play Marcus in this one. He was in the first film, but he did a just a great job of fleshing Marcus out and, and create a performance where we understand that, that Marcus, in many ways, is... Sort of Mindy's chief antagonist. You know, he's the yeah. one who creates the problem for Mindy in this movie. But there's such a strong sense of of um, of love between the two of them that you really understand that he cares for her like a daughter. Did well, he, he doesn't want her to be a superhero. Yeah, 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 but you understand sort of the tragedy of their relationship. Yeah,
1: he takes on uh,
0: sort of Nick Cage's role as her father figure. Yeah, he becomes her guardian because you know both her parents are gone, and right. he's the one who says you can't do this anymore.
1: Right. And so that character you invented, or that was in the, no, no, no. You know, no. He was he's in, in, he, he he's in the in, first
0: film, uh, played by a different actor, and he he's in both. Uh, the
1: comic books so. okay and so um, the last thing with with the cast is so tell me about the three girls who play the mean girl so it's Claudia Lee plays Brooke
0: yeah Tanya Fear
1: plays, plays Harlow
0: Harlow and Ella Purnell plays Dolce Dolce did you come up with those names yeah I'm, nobody I, even says those names in the script know, ever but they're, they're great they're such amazing preposterous names yeah Um, Yeah, they were fantastic. (laughs) You know, when we got them together, it was just magic. The three of them just looked so good together, and they vibed off each other so well. It was great, yeah. Yeah, Claudia in particular is just fantastic in the movie. Yeah. I mean, we speaking of seeing everyone in Hollywood, we saw every girl in that age range for that part. We even brought in L.A. casting directors to help us specifically with that part. In London? No, in L.A. Oh, in L.A. L.A. casting directors, because we were casting largely out of... London oh, Okay, we got Lindy and Donald because I reached out to them but here we uh, brought in LA casting directors just to look <laughs> for Brooke and we saw everyone and Claudia was just the best hands down um, her ability to be like sweet and appealing but also uh, be so vile and evil, evil. it's just yeah. incredible
1: yeah it's a great cast. I mean, you really assembled an awesome cast. And uh, it was probably reminiscent of the Cry Wolf Days casting because it's the same age group, really. Yeah, yeah. High school. No,
0: it seems like all my movies are... Um, High school. For actors in that age range. You know, <laughs> right. Again, a lot of the credit goes to... Reg Poor, Scott Edgerton, who was our UK casting director, but also uh, Justine Hemp and Susan Abrams, who did it here in Los Angeles. Yeah,
1: well, I think it's really fun. And on Twitter, uh, you only get 140 characters, so I quickly tried to say as much as I could. So I said that I thought it was better than the first, even better than the first. uh, and I thought it was funny and smart and action-packed. So it's you know all the things you said as far as like the tone, all those different tones. Thanks, Brad. Um, appreciate that. Comes out next weekend, August sixteenth. So now is when we go back in time a little bit. I go back is, in time. This is okay. when it, This is the fun I stuff. I Thought we'd already done like a little trip down yeah. memory lane. Well, we go even further. Okay. About. Okay. So um, this is like when it becomes like inside the actor studio. Okay. Kind of. um, so tell us where you're from. Originally.
0: I, I am from Charlottesville, Virginia. Right. And your mom was actually the senator of Virginia. She was a state senator, uh, not a U.S. senator, right. but she was a state senator, uh, and she was the head of the Democratic Party in Virginia.
1: That's right. And so you're tied very deeply to Virginia. Yes, very much so. Uh, and so, In fact,
0: going back there next week to do a special screening of the movie on Tuesday night. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it'll be fun. Oh, that's cool. And so, um, so you went to Dartmouth, majored in film. When did you graduate Dartmouth?
0: I graduated in 1998.
1: And the plan was always...
0: I'm going to be a director. Yeah, you know, I look very seriously at actually going to film school out here, undergrad. I looked at USC and UCLA, but, but it was actually my mom who said to me, um, you know, if you're going to be an artist, you have to have a, a broad-based liberal arts education, which means not necessarily uh, focusing on film Just undergrad, film. you know, you, and so I went to Dartmouth because I felt like I could get the best broad-based liberal arts education I could there.
1: Interesting. That's sort of my parents kept me on the East Coast too. I went to Syracuse for film, but it was you know the UCLA thing was they figured I had my whole life to live in yeah, LA. Yeah, yeah, and so but you double majored in film and history. Correct. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, <laughs> it was
0: it was fantastic. It was a great opportunity to learn a lot over a concise period of time, and experience a lot. And, and my parents were always very supportive of me, um, you know, taking internships and. and and programs during uh, my off terms that allowed me to continue to uh, pursue what I wanted to do in life, but at the same time I was getting that broad-based liberal arts education. Right.
1: So you graduate, and before you graduate, you were the counselor summer discovery. So yeah, just continuing the June timeline. Summer. Yeah. yeah before your, your senior year, and then. Um, it's funny with internships too, because all of my internships that I had, somehow there was a Jeff Wadlow link. I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> so, summer 2000, I interned at Tommy figure in New York City, so like special events department. And yeah. one day I'm sitting at this desk, and one of the girls, what's, what's her name? Blonde girl? Uh, I think it
0: was, was
1: it May Lisa. May Lisa, yeah. yeah. I was trying to think. I yeah. knew it was like an interesting name with an M. So she's telling someone else in the office, she's like, I'm leaving early. I'm going to grab dinner with my friend Jeff Wadlow. And I was like, and then I was like, Jeff Wadlow? He, I'm like, he was my camp counselor a couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I emailed you and yeah. reconnected. Then the next summer, also in New York City, I interned at Hypnotic, which was Doug Lyman's company. And uh, Doug Lyman, at the time, he's a director. He was prepping Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and he uh, he tells me, and everyone in the office, Dave Bardis, they tell me about this festival that they're sponsoring, this film festival called the Chrysler Million Dollar Film Festival, and they tell me to watch the 25 short films that made the top 25 out of like hundreds of submissions. So I'm watching them, and there's one called Tower of Babel, written and directed by a USC student named Jeff Wildlow. Yeah. So my second internship, I was like, this is getting crazy. Yeah. So I think I wrote you again, being like, I work at Hypnotic, and I just watched your movie. I started to think maybe you were stalking me, no, right? No, it, <laughs> it was a complete coincidence. I know. And so... Um, so tell me about Tower of Babel because you made this short film at USC and it's an incredible short film. Yeah,
0: so after Dartmouth, I took a year and I lived in New York and I was uh, Pierce Brosnan's assistant on the Thomas Crown Affair and did some other like that's right PA jobs and was like a production coordinator on a travel film. But you
1: and, also the Kevin Spacey movie, right? Yeah, we're doing the Kahuna. Kevin Spacey
0: movie. I was a PA basically. That that meant I, I uh, you know was security at the uh, <laughs> on the soundstage door. <laughs> right. Um, and then uh, I moved out to LA to go to the Peter Stark Producing Program at USC to get my MFA in producing. And uh, what's great about the Stark Program at USC is it's only two years, uh, but you get to make as many movies as the production students do over three years. And so I made a thesis film called The Tower of Babel, um, which was a cool idea. It was sort of loosely based on um, the oblique scene, which is an exercise that David Mamet teaches where he has his actors you know, tell different stories but use the same dialogue and see. Yeah,
1: it's very cool. It's the same script three times But if you say the lines a different way, it changes the genre. Exactly,
0: because we're kind of riffing on this idea that the English language is finite. If you know, if you assume a word can't be infinitely long, you know, you can generate every possible word uh, quite easily. Right, Uh, and and it leads to sort of the notion that you know, given enough time, a monkey at a typewriter (laughs) can type Romeo and Juliet by accident. So we're sort of talking about how we're doomed to repeat ourselves. But ultimately, the infinite variable is you know what we choose to invest in those words, and so we we showed through a comedy a drama, and a thriller, three totally different stories that all have the same script, that those words can mean entirely different things.
1: It's super cool. And you act in it. I did. Because at one point, you were an actor. Yeah,
0: I was an actor for a little while. You Um, were in the movie
1: Pearl Harbor. I I had one line in (laughs) Pearl Harbor, which is a funny story. That was very exciting, though, to say that my counselor had one line in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that was Um, a funny story. What's the story? Oh, basically, (laughs) I was in film school. I wasn't even going to make you talk about it. Yeah, I I was
0: in film school. And uh, you know, I was trying to make a buck any way I could, so I was doing coverage on scripts, and uh, I was also going out for some like small parts. Um, and I went out for Pearl Harbor because I'm pretty sure every guy in his early twenties was seen for that movie because right. they needed so many people. Yeah. And I was like, my car got towed, so I missed the audition. I'd gotten like a bad grade on a paper for film school. I was just in a pissy mood, and so eventually I got the audition, and and I walked in the door, and the casting director said, okay. What you need to do is you need to roll across the floor and get under this chair and point to the corner of the room because that's where the Jab zeros are coming from and you have to say you know they're coming they're coming don't die don't die or something like that oh and I just looked at the camera and I said yeah I'm not going to do that and she, and she was like well don't you want to be in the movie and I was like yeah but I don't want to do she, that. and she said well then you got to you got to roll across the floor roll across <laughs> the floor and get under the chair and say don't they're coming they're coming don't die don't die and I said. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. And uh, <laughs> she said, you'd be perfect for the annoyed guy. So I got an entirely <laughs> different part. I played the annoyed guy yes, in line behind Van Van Affleck. Ben Affleck. And Kate Beckinsale. I think I was credited as the next guy in line. I remember saying to someone on set, can I be the guy in line? And they were like, honey, that's Ben. And I was like, fair enough. Wow. Yeah, Ben yeah, Affleck, Kate Beckinsale, Jeff Londo shared showed that scene. Yeah, I remember that seeing funny. that. And, you know, it's funny about that scene. We shot it at this old... Um, Uh, um, mental hospital north of Los Angeles that had a real period look and it was like all these guys getting their physicals and there must have been like... (laughs) 2,000 extras in like, uh. white t shirts and white shorts with crew cuts. So I look like every other extra. And this is a big deal because I had a speaking part and I was going to get like health insurance and all this stuff out of it. Right. And, and they were shooting out of, out of sequence and nobody would let me see a script. So I never knew when they were <laughs> going to get to my part. So I was terrified Michael Bay would get to it, like look around and be like, where's Just- the guy with the line? Oh, you look enough like him. You do it. And so right. I followed Michael Bay around <laughs> for three days in my <laughs> underwear, like waiting to say this line. Um, occasionally, he'd be like, "We need a cross." He'd point to me, "You cross," and be like, "No, no, no, no Michael, I'm the guy with the line." Right, totally. You don't yeah. wanna, you
1: don't wanna disrespect your character by having him show yeah, other no, places. No, no, no. Um, well, I brought that up <laughs> only because you acted in Tower of Babel, yeah, yeah, and it was narrated by Kevin Spacey. Yeah, Kevin Spacey.
0: Uh, narrated it. I'd worked on that movie, The Big Kahuna. Right. Well, that's with very him. cool that you asked him. And, to do and that. Danny DeVito was in Big Kahuna, too, and I got him to do a voice in another short film I made called Catching Clear. Oh, right, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. So, to see, I think the lesson from that is that don't ever be afraid to ask people for favors because they might say yes. Yeah, well, well what's the worst that's <laughs> going to happen? They'll say no. Yeah, exactly. And so he narrates, it, he narrates Sarah Bebel and it gives it that American Beauty, Kevin Spacey narration, yeah. which I like.
0: I'll never forget, we showed it to our industry mentor who is totally not helpful. And <laughs> we showed him the final cut. And he goes, uh, where'd you get the Kevin Spacey sound-alike? And I was like, dude, that is
1: Kevin Spacey. (laughs) That's funny. Well, so, Power Babble leads to the Chrysler Million Dollar Film Festival. You make the top five. You had made the 25, now the top five. And then the top five filmmakers moved into a house together. Very Project Greenlight esque, sort yeah. of. No cameras, uh, though. No cameras, that. but they should have. I'd love to I know, see it. I know. Very uh, happy they did not have cameras. Summer 2002 in Westwood. Yeah. And I was at UCLA as a counselor. Yeah. So again, and I was not stalking you. Yeah. I, I was a block away at UCLA, and you were living in this house with five filmmakers. I remember I came to a couple parties at the house. Yeah. It was kind of cool. But while you're living at the house, you're doing all these challenges. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges was to make a trailer for a movie, and you made a trailer called Living the Lie, starring Topher Grace and Estella Warren. Yep. And you ended up winning Best Trailer, but, you know, that stage of the competition.
0: For the screenplay, the the screenplay and the trailer. Oh, correct, right.
1: And then Living the Lie became adapted to Cry Wolf because the prize was a million-dollar movie with Rogue at Universal,
0: and Cry Wolf was the... The winner. Yeah, and we actually they canceled the contest right after that, and they tried to not give us the money, and we <laughs> spent a year trying to get the money out of them, and eventually Universal really uh, stepped up to the plate. Well, you won,
1: and then they were like, "It's done."
0: Yeah, they wouldn't give us the mo- they wouldn't give us the money. Oh, I didn't know that. But well, fortunately, well, that's why a year elapsed. Yeah, it between. took a year, but like I said, Universal was just fantastic, and and they ultimately gave us the balance and allowed us to go make the movie.
1: Yeah, well, that's why yesterday was a very full circle moment for me because I'm driving on the Universal lot to see your movie, and I used to drive there every day to intern. Yeah. on... Cry Wolf Um, so let's talk about Cry Wolf so that was your first movie you directed it um, you wrote the script with Bo Bauman, who Correct. also produced it. Correct. Uh, good friend of yours. Yeah. So I met through you. Uh, pre-production was here in L.A., like I said, on the Universal lot. All the auditions. Learned a lot that summer uh, watching. Actually, one thing was like an epiphany. You, which I'm going to continue, I'm going to do this too, but you put the five, like the lead characters' names on the wall and then like the five headshots going down uh, of your five choices in order. Yeah. And I just remember looking at that wall and having this epiphany. And I've mentioned this to a couple actors on the podcast, but um how many times is the person in second position in second position and so close to maybe getting the role and they never know you know you never know, and so that's why you just to keep persevering because the person in the first position is not always going to be available or interested or whatever. And I just remember looking at this wall of actors just being like, "I can't believe you they know, don't know how close they are how close they come every time, and hopefully they don't give up because the next time the positions could move around well, that's especially um,
0: important when you're like building an ensemble because yeah, I, you know, actors don't want to hear this, but it's not always who's necessarily best for the role. Sometimes it's like who's who's the best part of the ensemble. The chemistry. Yeah, you need to yeah. build an ensemble. You're not just casting individual parts. Well,
1: that was one of my favorite things that you did was a mix and match day yeah. where you had like a like probably the top 3 options for different roles come in and all hang out and you look to see who are the best 6 or 8.
0: It's yeah, tough for the on roles. the actors. Yeah, yeah but you know
1: but you need to do it for the sake of the movie. Yeah. Um, so the cast of that movie, Jared Padalecki played Tom, yep. and he was coming off Gilmore Girls. And I remember my campers that previous summer, because now I had been the counselor, the campers uh, loved Gilmore Girls, and they were obsessed with it. So I knew when Jared Padalecki walked in, he was like the first person to audition for Tom, that he would be a good choice for that. And Sandra McCoy ended up playing Mercedes, and even though it was written as a blonde, and yeah. she like kind of just came in and... Yeah, no, that it illustrates
0: one of the character. most imp- one of the most important lessons I believe in casting is that if someone comes in and surprises you, they're usually the right person for the role because right. it means they have a take on the character that you didn't necessarily think of, and. Uh, you want people who are going to elevate your material, not people who are just going to do exactly what you expect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, I learned a lot that summer, and people think I learned it all from Brett Ratner, but before <laughs> Brett Ratner, there was Jeff Waldo uh, So, but I brought up Tom, uh, the characters Tom Mercedes, because they dated in the film, and then Jared and Sandra ended up dating in real life. And I remember thinking like they got cast because of their chemistry, and then they had it in real life too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so then the other characters speaking of like rewriting a role for somebody or like envisioning it a different way. Julian Morris, who's now in Pretty Little Liars, yep. played Owen, mm-hmm.
0: and the character became British because he was your
1: favorite for the role.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, you just, there's a, I think there's a chapter in Linda Ope's book, Hello, He yeah, where she talks about you got to ride the horse in the direction it's going. And Julian came in and he was fantastic. And we were you know, thinking, should we ask him to come back and try to like do it with a more of an American accent? And uh, like the next girl who was auditioning for a different part was like, who is that guy? He had the sexiest British accent. <laughs> And we're like, or maybe the character can just be a Brit.
1: Yeah, or an exchange student. Yeah, yeah, Which, it actually really worked really well. Yeah. And um, and uh, I actually remember the day he auditioned because he jogged in place, like, to a Walkman outside. Yeah. And... Uh, Maybe it was an iPod, but I don't think it was back then. And uh, so he would be, like, sweaty and out of breath for the scene. And I just remember thinking he was a great actor and really committed. I actually just reconnected with him recently. I ran into him, and uh, we talked about Crywolf. And so uh, we already talked about Lindy Booth was Dodger, and I still remember her final scene in that movie, Crywolf, for anyone who's seen it, just when a twist is revealed and the way she says what she says and reveals the end of that movie is just awesome, which I think makes the whole movie, that yeah, final she's scene. she's
0: fantastic in, them, in that scene. It's, you know,
1: she made the whole movie work in that one moment without saying a word. Yeah. And um, so if for people who haven't seen Cry Wolf, watch that because the end, it's a very cool twist at the end. And um, another actor, Paul James, who I went to college with, it was his first audition in L.A. He played, uh, he played Lewis. He walked in. At Universal to audition and was like said to me like what are you doing here and I was like what are you doing here and he had just I think moved from New York first LA audition and he nailed it.
0: Yeah he's a fantastic actor he was on Glee for a long time. Well Greek yeah. Uh, yeah, Glee, (laughs) Greek. Different G. He could have been on Glee. He Uh, he sings. uh, (laughs) And we put him in SAG on that movie and and he's just gotten better and better over the years. I mean he was great to begin with and I'm I'm just a huge fan of his work. Yeah
1: and then I want to mention John Bon Jovi played the teacher in that movie. That is correct. Which is why I'm from Jersey obviously so you grow up knowing all about Bon Jovi um how did he end up the teacher in Wolf? what was that story
0: I got a call from CAA and they were like uh we want to put John Bon jo- Jovi in your movie and I was like shut up who is this <laughs> and 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 they were like no it's it's so and so it's yeah and I was like no it's not Max Adam <laughs> I thought it was like one of my buddies from right, college. Right. and uh because oh, you were a Bon Jovi fan I just thought they were someone who was just fucking with me <laughs> and um he John was great you know he's a really talented actor and and uh he, he threw himself into the role. You know, originally it was sort of written for someone who's like more of like a grad student. Um, John was a little older than that back then. And, and so um, I just sort of reconceived the part for, you know, this kind of like young, you know, this sort of hot teacher who, you know, kind of lives his life like he's a rock star, which sort of works. <laughs> right. He does not reasons. play
1: John Bon Jovi in the movie.
0: No, no, no. <laughs> and uh, the only – the one thing that was funny is I wanted him to cut his hair really short and kind of have a preppy sort of look. And he cut it pretty, fairly short, but it was still long-ish. And uh, I was in the hair and makeup trailer, and I was like, can we go a little shorter? And he turned to me, and he said, you know, I make a lot of money in my other job for having longer hair. And I was like, right. fair enough, John. Right. Fair
1: enough. A lot more than he was making on the million-dollar movie, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Bon Jovi's, like, the, one of the highest-grossing touring bands, and they've sold, like, hundreds of millions oh, of albums. It's, I, it's crazy. I mean,
0: I would guess he's probably one of the, certainly one of the 20 most recognizable people. Wow. Don't you think? Maybe. I mean, he's a huge, huge yeah. rock star. You're right. You're right.
1: And that was in the 80s and 90s when people were buying CDs. Yeah. So, yeah. So, maybe not albums.
0: most recognizable people, certainly most recognizable musicians. musicians. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I might even give him top 10 for musicians. Wow. If okay, we're only talking this. about people alive.
1: Okay. Right? So now it's top 10 musicians who are alive. Right. Yeah. Most recognizable. Yeah. Okay. I'll give him that.
0: I'd even go top five most recognizable. Wow. alive. Come on. It's John Bon Jovi. Wow.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. And you got to work with him. Yeah. No, he's a um, really nice guy. The other thing I want to say about Cry Wolf is that you shot it in Virginia, and I desperately wanted to be your assistant on it, and they wouldn't let me because it had to be local hires. Yeah. I yeah. was so bummed. Yeah. But you got to go home to Virginia to shoot it. You shot it at which college campus uh, We
0: shot it at a bunch of different campuses, largely at the University of Richmond. I mean, the only reason we could make that movie, because it was a million-dollar budget, you know, and we were shooting film with night exteriors and a large cast which all costs a lot of money, is that the state of Virginia really supported the film, and we got extras for free and locations for free and food for free, and the crew cut their rates. So So production
1: value looks great because it's on a real campus.
0: Yeah, I mean, we just owe so much to the state of Virginia for making that movie a reality.
1: And school was in session, right? It was the fall of 2003?
0: Yeah, I think it was right before classes started up. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Well,
1: so if you haven't seen *Cry Wolf, see that. And then the next movie you directed was called Never Back Down, which is then when Jeff Wilder became the MMA
0: guy, <laughs> MMA fighting guy. Briefly, yeah. yeah. No, I had never actually been to an MMA fight before I agreed to uh, direct that movie. But in a weird way, I think that helped me as a director because I wasn't, it wasn't like some inside baseball where I was assuming that the audience understood MMA and, and, and how people win an MMA fight. You know, right. It was uh, incumbent upon me to really study Mixed martial arts and start to understand like the strategy behind the fight, so that I could convey that to the audience. So in
1: real life, you were kind of like the character in the movie. Yeah, Sean exactly. Ferris's character is learning MMA. Exactly, um, and MMA. That's like when it first became like a thing. Was yeah. like right around the time that movie.
0: Yeah, in a weird way, we actually thought it would go more mainstream than it has. You know, mm-hmm. I think we thought, you know, it was this, this sport that was growing so quickly, and this would be a movie. It would sort of herald its dominance, and even though it still is incredibly popular and has continued to grow in its popularity, I don't know if it's ever really become as mainstream as we thought it would at the time. Right,
1: but it's still a great movie. Um, where did you guys shoot that one? Where did you shoot I shot that, that in though? Orlando. Oh, okay, yeah. so you have yet to be able to make a movie in L.A. Yeah, I've
0: never made a movie in Los <laughs> or Angeles. Or New York City. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's too expensive. But they take place there. Yeah. Um, so Sean Farris, who I mentioned, Amber Heard, Cam Gigandet. Day. Jigande. It's a I hard one to I've say. I've always wondered
0: how to pronounce Kim it. I can say it. I'll, I'll spare you on the next one, Jaiman Hansu. I know Jaiman Okay. Honsu. I can say that. It's a tough one, though. That is. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of spelled how it's said. No, but they're all fantastic movies. Wait, the film. Cam is.
1: How do you say Cam? Is it Cam? Jigande. But his first name's Cam. Cam Jigande.
0: Okay. Jigande. Yeah. yeah. Well, Juman is like an Academy Award nominee. Yeah. That's pretty cool. No, he, he's such a nice guy, and it was really generous of him to do the film. He, he only worked, I think, like eight days. although was oh, really? all over the movie, Yeah. yeah i'll never forget he was on set and i like to yell from monitor i'll be like do it again go back go back do it again um one more and, yeah and he was <laughs> on set and i was directing someone else and then you know we we, we cut and then we started setting up for his scene and we started shooting his scene and you know he would do a whole take and i would say cut and i'd walk over to him and say mr hansu i was thinking on this next take and then we do a whole take oh, you and I'd call say, him cut, mr hansu and i'd come over and be like you know mr hansu <laughs> and he would be like jeff steven spielberg you know, he just shouts from the monitor. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and he was like, so if you want to do that, you can do that. And I was like, thank you very much. <laughs> and call me John. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Whatever suits for you yeah, you could do. It. So he was, he was very generous.
1: But I just remember going to see it in the theater and being so impressed with, like, the fight sequences. Because, like, Cry Wolf is more of a teen drama. Yeah. And then thriller. suddenly... Thriller, yes. But Never Back Down becomes this action movie
0: yeah no I had a lot of fun shooting those fights I had a great team Damon Caro who did all the fights in th- uh, 300 in Fight Club yeah uh, and Jonathan Eusebio they co- uh, choreographed the fights but then I shot all the fights myself like I didn't have an action director like I didn't have a second unit director shooting right. the fights because um, I just think it's really important for action to tell a story and not just be an interlude and so I think it's on you as the director to make sure that's happening.
1: Yeah, I still can vividly remember the uh, fight sequence at the pool party. Yeah, like, that's, that's a fun. It's one. an amazing scene. Nice. Um, but I think "Never Back Down" prepared you for Kickass too. I don't think you know. I think with oh, yeah. with that under your belt and on your credits that leads you to be able to take on a movie like Kick Ass too. Yeah,
0: without a doubt. Because again, it was just a you know, we just raised the stakes on the action and but I still was very involved in all the action sequences for the same reason because I wanted them to tell the story of the film.
1: Right. And so so we've covered your three movies. I want to talk to you a little about Bates Motel. So yeah. that's a hit show on A and E. You're a consulting producer on it. You've written a bunch of episodes. Mm-hmm. Right. And how did you get involved with that? Because I because as people know, the Psycho House is on the Universal yeah. lot. It all comes back to it Universal. It all comes back to Universal. And so, that obviously, it's a Universal property, Bates Motel.
0: Yeah, no, basically, I finished the Kick Ass 2 script. I met Carlton Hughes from Lost. I okay. sat a general with him and really hit it off with him. And he called me like two days later. He said, Hey, I'm going to do this thing, Bates Motel. You know, they're just going to order three scripts. You know, there's going to be no pilot if they like the scripts. They're going to shoot six episodes. Um, do you want to come and break the first six episodes with me and this writer, Carrie Aaron from Friday Night Lights?
1: Wow. I was like, "Yeah,
0: why not?" And so I went and met with Carlton Carey. We hit, really hit it off, and. We spent two months together breaking the first six stories, and I wrote, I wrote two of the scripts. And I probably would have stayed on and stayed involved, but that's when Matthew called me and said, hey, we're going to make the movie, so I had to leave. Oh, you had to
1: make a choice. Yeah,
0: I, I left, and then they ordered four more episodes, and, and the show's been really well-received. And I obviously couldn't be happier for uh, Carlton and Gary. Wow. Yeah, were you a Psycho fan or an, an Alfred Hitchcock fan? Yeah, absolutely. Huge Hitchcock fan. And, 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 I, and I'm really proud of some of my contributions to the film. For example, like in the pilot— there's a great moment where Norman is walking up the stairs and he sees a silhouette of Norma in the window, which is very evocative of the first film. And that was like one of my ideas early on. I was like, no, 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 we have to do the silhouette in the window. That's how we should end this act. And, and Carlton yeah. Yeah, cool. is such an incredible leader. Um, and Carrie is such a fantastic writer. And, and I was really fortunate that they embraced my uh enthusiasm, even though I didn't really know what I was doing when <laughs> do I came get to, to TV. Do you get to stay involved, or how does it work? No, no, I mean, it's, TV's all about rendering services in many ways. right? And, and because of Kick-Ass, I just couldn't really render any services right. and stay involved.
1: No. Right, but um, the show's a big hit. Emmy nominated, Vera Farmiga's nominated.
0: Yeah, I mean, that look, that's all Carlton and Carrie. You know, I, I left before they started shooting, and... And they uh, they just cast the hell out of that show. I mean, you could not ask for better actors than the cast they got.
1: Right. Well, so your main focus is film. hmm The last thing we'll talk about is what's next for you. So I know you're a producer on a movie called Nonstop.
0: Yeah, that was a movie that I set up with Joel Silver that I was going to direct, but I couldn't uh, when Kick-Ass 2 got greenlit and, and Liam Neeson had a, a window where he could shoot it. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, they went and made it with my blessing, but I stayed involved as an executive producer.
1: That comes out in February. Correct. And that's Liam Neeson, Julianne Moore, Anson Mount, Corey Stoll, who I'm such a Corey Stoll fan.
0: Yeah. Midnight
1: is. in Paris and House of
0: Cards. He's I, so underrated. I loved him in House of Cards. And he's actually now doing a TV show with Carlton Hughes from Bates Motel. He's doing The Strain, which is a oh, cool. Guillermo del Toro show that Carlton's doing.
1: Yeah, it was bummed that he got killed off House of Cards. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: uh, what can you say about Non-Stop? Um, not much other than it's a really cool idea that these two writers, Chris Roach and John Richardson brought to me. Uh, the whole movie takes place in an airplane. Uh, um, oh, wow. and it's about an air marshal who hates his job. Hence uh, the title. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I thought it was just such a brilliant concept and, and those guys are just really so clever. Uh, Joel got excited about it and that's why the movie I made.
1: Right. And so because of kick-ass couldn't do it yeah but you were going to direct it yeah that was, yeah, that was the thing. originally the idea yeah wow and so okay this is big news as of like what a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. the next movie that you're going to write and direct after kick ass 2 is called x-force
0: yeah i'm writing it right now it's for fox it's a a spinoff from the x-men movies um based on the comic book and i'm um, just really lucky in that mark miller uh who created kick ass is a consultant for Fox. He sort of oversees all their Marvel titles. And when he got that gig, I was uh, posting Kick-Ass, and I went to him and said, hey, I would love to do an X-Force movie, and this is how I do it. And he got really excited and gave me some ideas and that I incorporated, and then we uh, took it into Fox. And Steve Asbell is the executive there, and he heard the pitch, and he said, let's do it.
1: Did you think you'd be a comic book movie director back in the day, or what was really? Yeah,
0: maybe. I mean, I bought comic books all through high school. I bought X-Force 1 when I was oh, really? in high school. Um, so, wait, See, so I'm X- not surprised. The X-Force comics are written by Rob Liefeld? Rob Liefeld uh, is the artist, and he did a lot of the... He did the plots. Okay. He um, started with New Mutants that turned into X-Force. But then there's been other incarnations of X-Force since uh, that have done really well. Uh, Rick uh, Remender did um, Uncanny X-Force, uh, which was a big hit. and So there's been other incarnations that have been uh, quite successful. Yeah, since. I've
1: never met Rob, but we have the same manager, Brooklyn Weaver. So I know the name, and yes. I know his uh, credits. Um, so... It's listed as being in 2016. Is that the plan? I don't know. You know, that's far away. All up
0: in the air. Yeah, yeah. You you never know.
1: Um, Yeah. So. Anyway, so you have a lot on your plate.
0: Yeah, working hard.
1: Yeah. Um, I emailed you recently. I was like, you're unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> but I always knew that. Um, because I do remember, so I was going to say before we go, and before we do the last thing that we do here, is that um, I just remember working on, like, I had this, the, the first, like I said, first engine trip ever in L.A., your movie, Cry Wolf. First script that I wrote that got attention, like, from Brett Ratner and some other people was called The Island. It was a TV pilot. It was basically, like, ROC, but in New York, yep. before there was Gossip Girl. And You were um, ahead of the curve. I was ahead of the curve, but Josh to beat me to yeah. it as usual. No, but uh but that's where I learned all of the screenwriting tips from you and you had read my original script and you liked it and you came on board and helped develop it and it really, you know, it gave me a little bit of a, you know, start in the screenwriting career and got me recognized early on by some good people. And then um we wrote a movie, I came to me with a movie idea that hopefully will happen someday. And so, But I was going to say that I vividly remember sitting in your apartment writing these scripts and talking about stuff and just knowing that one day you were going to blow up and that these were the humble beginnings, I think.
0: You are too kind, Brett. I think it's true.
1: I, I d- appreciate it. I, d- I remember that. Um, so the last thing we do here on, on the list uh, to close out each show is called The Mystery Question. And uh, so what I do is I have the guest from my previous podcast leave a question in an envelope for my next guest, who they don't know who it's going to be. Okay. And I don't know the question either. So the guest on the last podcast— I hope podcast, it's not like,
0: what, what is your bra size?
1: It could be anything. I mean, literally, it's a mystery. Okay. So uh, I hope so, too, though. Okay. Uh, I hope not. Uh, so Danya Ramirez from Devious Maids was my guest on last podcast. I okay. worked with her on X-Men, speaking of comic books, um, X-Men 3. So she wrote the question for you that's sealed in this envelope. You'll open that, and then you'll leave one for whoever. Number
0: 25. So I'll leave well, number 26?
1: Well, you— this is episode 26.
0: Okay. So you'll leave it for yeah, episode Got it. 27. Got it. All right, so I'm opening scary. it right now. Is this is a good idea, Brett. Did you come up with this? I did come up with it. So well, let's... I wanted, you know, something to thread all the episodes together. Okay. Do you think your current role inspires people? How... No, sorry. How do you think your current role inspires people in America? Your... My what? current role. Well, I'm not really playing a role. Should we say my role in my in As this, a my film? yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hope it certainly inspires people to pursue their dreams. It inspires In me. a weird way, it inspired you. See, we brought it all back full circle. That's a right? perfect question. Yeah. Yeah, I think your role inspires people. Um, I hope so. I mean, look, you got to make it happen. That's certainly how this movie came to be, and and you're making it happen. So, uh, trying to. We'll see. Um, and so what's the message of Kick-Ass 2 to, to inspire people? We could end on that. The message of Kick-Ass 2, ooh, that's a tough one. The message of how it got made, um, I think, is more inspiring, which is uh, – you know, if you love something, you just got to work your ass off and it will uh, come to fruition. Right.
1: I like that. We'll end on that. So, everybody, go see Kick Ass 2 next weekend. Comes out August 16th. Theaters everywhere. Guarantee it's a good time at the movies. I've seen it. And thank you so much to Jeff for being here.
0: Thank you for having me, Brett. It's been a blast. It has been. It's been fun. Yeah. Catching
1: up. Yeah. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And I will talk to you next time. <laughs>